He who believes on the Son has everlasting life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Even so, we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration that is the renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance on our study of his word this morning. Our Father, we are so thankful that we can come together in freedom to worship you, to put our focus and attention upon you, to recognize that you are the God of all creation. You created all of the, uh, all of the creation, all of the land, all of the sea, all of the air, all of the uh, planets and stars. You have created all things. And you have a right to rule over these things, but in your wisdom and in your desire to have creatures who willingly love you, you have created creatures, angels and man, who have volition, who have responsibility, who can choose to serve you out of their desire. And, Father, we are thankful that we come to understand this and that we recognize that there is an important need to proclaim the gospel to others that they may learn of your love for us, of sending Christ to die for us, and that they too may follow that choice. But once we've made that choice, Father, as we study in Ephesians, there's so much more to it than simply being saved and knowing that our destiny is heaven, but that we have a life, a purpose, a destiny to fulfill here on the earth as members of this glorious new creation the church, and all that you have set forth for us in the church. Father, we pray that as we continue our study in Ephesians 2 and 3, as Paul continues to teach us about the glories of this new creation, that we may understand how this should transform our understanding of who we are at our very core and all that you desire us to do and have provided for us as we continue this study in Christ's name, amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Ephesians. We are in Ephesians chapter 3, starting that uh, this morning, in order to continue our study here of Ephesians. And the focal point today, it may surprise you, we won't get very far, is just the beginning of Ephesians chapter 3. Understanding the significance of what Paul says here, that he is Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. He is a prisoner in Rome because of his gospel ministry. 
And that's about as far as a lot of pastors will go when you come to these phrases where Paul mentions that he is a prisoner for the sake of the Gentiles, he's a prisoner for Christ. They, they, they don't go much beyond that, but what we see here is going to take us into a realization of all the baggage that goes with that particular phrase and why Paul uses it here at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verse 1. It's interesting, as we sang our, our hymn this morning on um, the church's one foundation, I want to back up a minute. It just hit me here in verse 2. He had to have been thinking through Ephesians as he wrote much of what is here. It alludes to that which is in Ephesians. If we think about what we have studied here by way of review, in chapter 2, in the last section from 11 to 22, the focus is on what God has done in this new creation. And that phrase, the new creation, comes out of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We frequently quote 8 and 9 at the beginning of our class. But there we read, we are his, uh, his workmanship. And that seems a somewhat cumbersome term in modern language. It's a somewhat antiquated term. Uh, it's not one we use every day. We might translate it craftsmanship. But the idea that we are a creation of God, it's not that we're just a creation, it is the creation of God, that he has created the church. And so this makes all of those who are part of that corporate entity, the church, to have this incredible identity of that we're part of a a special creation from God. God is perfect. He can create nothing less than perfect. God is the master craftsman, the master artist. There's no one who can create anything more artistic, more beautiful, more glorious, more grand than, than God. And that's who we are as the church. That's all packed into this word that is simply translated workmanship. But it is so much more than what most of us think of when we, when we read that. And as we studied our way through Ephesians 2, we focused on certain themes that were there. That he starts off reminding his readers, reminding the Gentiles, that they were separate from Israel. In verse 12, he says, you were without Christ, that you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Without Christ doesn't mean they're not saved. They were not saved, but we use it that way. Do you have Christ? Do you not have Christ? And we mean saved or unsaved. That's not what it meant. It meant they didn't have a Messiah. They had no messianic heritage. They had no messianic promise, no messianic prophecy. So they are without that hope. And that's why he goes goes on to talk about their aliens from the commonwealth of Israel Strangers from the covenants of promise, because the focal point of the promise is what he says next, which is that they have no hope. The promises give us hope. The promises gave Israel hope. The promises were embedded in uh, the Mosaic law, which is the foundation of the commonwealth of Israel. And as a result of not having any of those things, they were godless. They were without God. They worshiped many gods, but they were without God. Uh, the God in the world. And then Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near. That is who we are. We have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ, by the death of Christ, and, and we studied that. And we saw that in that next section that Paul talks about the fact that he has made us both one in verse 14. The both have been made one. So when we go forward from there and he talks about one, the one describes Jew and Gentile together are now now one, whereas before there was a distinction, now there's a unity. And so he identifies this new entity as, in verse 15, one new man from the two. One. And then in verse uh, 16, that he might reconcile them both in one body. So we're one new man, we're one body, and we both have access by one, that is, the same spirit. Now that becomes the foundation for understanding what happens in in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, uh, we Paul shifts gears. He goes from understanding what we have in Christ, who we are in Christ, and all that God has given us in Christ to begin talking about what we are to do with that, that that, it, that, that gives us an obligation as a result of what God has done for us. And so he moves to what is often called the application stage, So after we learn all these things that are ours in Christ, in this unity, he then says in the beginning of of chapter 4, he says in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And look at this, this verse in this hymn. Elect from every nation, choice that is from every nation, yet one, that's the church, one or all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. It, it just comes right out of verse 5 of this, of this chapter. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses. That's the one hope that Jew and Gentile together both have in Christ. So I just was thinking about that as I sang that and just thought that was absolutely marvelous how he put all of that together. So that gives us a little bit of a review of where we are. And as Paul has taught them and walks them through the the basis for this new entity, the basis is Christ's finished work on the cross. It is, as we've studied, it is through his death, it is through him, it is by means of his blood that this new entity is then brought into existence by God, and it is, and all three members of the Trinity are involved in it, the Father, of course, the Son, obviously, and the Holy Spirit, which we've studied over the last several weeks. And so as Paul concludes what he has said in verses 11 to 18, he focuses on this new Reality, He says, now therefore you, that is you Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, which is what he talked about back in verse 11, but now fellow citizens with the Jews, with Israel, with the saved Jews, not the Jews of the Old Testament, because what he's talking about here is the New Testament believers, those who are truly of Israel initially, as we studied in chapter 1, Uh, When Paul talks about we, he's talking about we Jews who were first saved. That's Acts 2 through Acts 10. 
and now the, then in Acts 10, the gospel went to the Gentiles, and there's this equivalence of Jew and Gentile together in Christ. And so he says, we're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, and you can't think that the household of God includes Old Testament uh, saints because the household of God is built on what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, this isn't prophets and apostles, as I said. We're going to get this phrase again in the third chapter. Uh, it is apostles, church-age apostles. There's no apostle in the Old Testament. And prophets, there are New Testament of prophets. But it's not built upon them individually as persons. This is just one of those figures of speech where you have something or someone that is in a relationship to something else and so it's a figure of speech of substitution where you put one thing for something else. And uh, so this is like, um, for example, you may hear a news announcer say something like, well, the Pentagon said today. Well, the Pentagon is a building that doesn't speak. So what is it associated with? It's associated with the leadership of the military. So that is, that's really what it's talking about, just a figure of speech of substitution. We have the apostles and prophets. This isn't talking about them individually as persons. It is talking about what they did. So the substitution, the, the, the figure of substitution is, it's called a metonymy and as a technical term, but it simply means that you, the apostles and prophets are, it's not talking about them as persons, but in terms of what they did. What did they do? They received revelation from God. They communicated that revelation and that which God intended for the ages was inscripturated. It is the teaching the doctrine, it is that which is that they communicated to us the revelation of God. That is the foundation of the church, is the truth of God's word. And this is what comes up as a major theme, as a major teaching that Paul will develop in chapter 3, specifically in verses uh, 2 uh, down through verse uh, 12. But what's interesting is when we get into verse or chapter 3, he doesn't start off really talking about this revelation. Instead, he talks about himself. And he begins with this phrase, for this reason. So what does he mean by for this reason? Why is this important? Well, it's a transition phrase that is somewhat similar to phrases like therefore, it is based on everything he has said in chapter 2. In light of everything that he has just talked about, in light of the fact that Gentiles are now united together with Jews in the body of Christ. That's the new revelation. That's, that's very clear. That was never true prior to the day of Pentecost. In the Old Testament, God's plan was to work specifically through a set-apart people, the Jewish people, but even as, as Paul recognizes in Romans 9, not all Israel was Israel. Not all were saved, but all were part of God's, God's covenant people. But now that is not the significant issue. The significant issue is being 
in Christ, being in the church. So Paul starts off with this phrase, for this reason, which in the Greek, which I've put up there, is an unusual way of saying this. There are other ways that Paul would say this, two of which are predominant, but this is a little bit different in the way he expresses it. But we need to look at it first in terms of the phrase and then in terms of its significance. And this is one of those times when we, as we get ready to look at this section, which goes uh, for uh, actually down to uh, verse 13, we need to think about what is going on here. Because it's a very complex structure. In fact, 1 through 13 is all, is, or 1 through 12 is all one sentence. It's another one of those long sentences. And with Paul, it's real easy to get lost in his long sentences. And that's why most translations break these sentences up into two or three, uh, two or three sentences. So it's easier. They're, they're smaller bites that, that we can get a hold of. But, as I've taught you over the years, you lose something by doing that. You lose the fact that in Paul's thinking, that is, in the mind of God the Holy Spirit who is revealing this truth to us through Paul, this is all ultimately one integrated thought. Now, here's a question for you. What's the thought? That's what pastors have to wrestle with is, Okay, I've got one thought here, but actually, because it's one sentence, but there's this huge interruption. Look at the end of verse 1 up here on the screen or in your Bibles. There's a long dash there that's called an M dash. And that tells you that this is, he's going to say something, and then he breaks with what he is saying, and then he's going to say something else. But they're not totally unrelated. A lot of people say, oh, well, Paul's like the rest of us. We start talking about one thing, we get excited, and we get diverted in our minds. And next thing you know, we've got this long train of thought going. And then we say, well, what do we say? What was it I was talking about? Where was I going with all of that? But that's not what's happening here because God the Holy Spirit never has to say that. And Paul's not saying that. There is a reason that he states what he states at the beginning of in verse 1, and then breaks with it. Because what he says here is talking about who he is and the fact that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, that it appears on the surface has nothing to do with what went on from 2.11 to 22 or from 2.1 to 22 or even going back to the first chapter. What does this sentence have to do with what is going on. And it has a couple of things to do with what is going on. And that's why we need to just have this kind of a little flyover here to understand this, this significance within the context. So Paul uses this phrase and he says, for this reason, and then there's going to be this break at the end of, of uh, verse one. And then we're going to find that we have that same phrase, the identical phrase in the Greek, in verse 14. You ought to link those together because he breaks his thought at the end of verse 1 and he comes back to it in verse 13. I mean, verse 14. So everything in between is related in some way to this this 
main thought. So we've got to wrestle with that particular uh, structure that that is there. And I think that one of the things we ought to point out, or I ought to point out, is when he makes this statement, and he says, for this reason, he doesn't use the normal word. He says this, that's the first word, tutu. But that second word, Karen, that's an extremely unusual phrase. In fact, he doesn't use it in this way uh, uh, again. And so we ought to ask, why is this unusual? Why does he break with his normal way of saying these things? And he says it twice. He says it in verse 1. He says it in verse 14. And there are liberals who come along and say, see, Paul never uses this anywhere else, so that means Paul didn't write this. This is somebody else. And, of course, that because they start with this presupposition, God has nothing to do with writing of the New Testament. That's why they go there. But we ought to ask ourselves, okay, why why is this happening? And I think it's for a couple of different reasons. I think that it, it's related to his purpose, that this isn't just something random, but Paul wants to catch our attention, so he says it in a slightly, uh, a slightly different way. And he uses this word karen for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think that, that it's to get our attention because the word, the, this, this phrase is somewhat antiquated. It, it, you might hear somebody say, see, this is an example of Attic Greek. That's the Greek they spoke in Athens back during classical Greek times. And it is and it isn't. It was an, an idiom in classical Greek. But just as we have idioms in English, it's an idiom that survives for 500 years, and it doesn't mean that he, Paul is necessarily conscious of saying something that has anything to do with Athenian Greek. Uh, we take it, in fact, in the next verse, it starts off with the phrase, if indeed, and it's two words in the, in the Greek, and you could translate it with an antiquated phrase that still shows up here and there in English, but it, it's really, if the place where you normally find it is in uh, faithful renditions of the original King James translation and in Shakespeare. And the way that you would translate it in Elizabethan English would be, if in truth. Now, as soon as you hear me say, well, if in truth, you know that that's not what you're going to hear on the street. That's not everyday language. That is really a way somebody in the 1600s or 1700s would speak, but that's not the way we speak today. But it's a way of speaking that still is part of our English language, and you can say something like, well, in truth, and that doesn't mean you know anything about Shakespeare or the old King James Version or anything else. It's just uh, how language works. You have certain phrases and idioms that have a more ancient foundation, and they just continue and hang on through through the uh, particular centuries. And so he's he's using a phrase that is somewhat antiquated by the first century. So it's going to get people's attention. And then the word karin is used as a preposition, but it's really the, the, the nominative form or the main form of, of this word is charis. Charis is the Greek word for grace. But what happened in the development of the language is that, and I don't know why, but the accusative form, which is karin, became part of an idiom for this meaning for this reason. And so Paul is using this word karn, which is an unusual way of stating this, but it wouldn't be unknown. 
but it would bring to mind to somebody who was slowing down and thinking about what he's saying, the idea of grace. And guess what? Grace is a major part of what he is talking about in this section. When he breaks in verse 2, he says, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation or the administration of the grace of God which was given to me. And so as we go through this, it talks about grace again in verse 8. This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so grace is part of the theme that's coming up here. So this isn't something that's just there. It is something often we find in Scripture that the writers will use certain words that they have one primary sense that they're talking about, but they use that word because it's going to bring other ideas to mind that they want to have associated with what uh, with what they are talking about. So Paul begins in verse 1 with his thought that is related to his being in prison. Uh, Ephesians is one of those four, uh, four New Testament Pauline epistles that are called his, his prison epistles. There's Ephesians and Colossians, and then there is Philippians and Philemon. Those are the four prison imp- epistles. And so it reminds us that the Apostle Paul was a prisoner in Rome. Actually, it was a four-year imprisonment. He started in, in uh, Israel. He had gone to Judea, and this is described in the latter part of Acts. He goes there. Uh, it caused, We'll look at this before we're done. It causes a huge stir and riot in in Jerusalem, and he is arrested by the Romans, and he's put under arrest and kept in uh, the the palace of the Roman procurator, governor rather, in uh, in Caesarea by the sea. Some of you have gone to Israel with me. We have gone there. It's one of the most beautiful sites that we go to in Israel when the Mediterranean is just a, a fabulous shade of blue and everything is is tremendous. And that's where Paul spent two years. And then he appealed to Rome because as a Roman citizen he could do that. And so he is then taken by ship. There's the shipwreck, and then he finally arrives in Rome as a prisoner, and he's a prisoner there for the next two years. This is the period of time, but it's specifically written while he is in Rome as a as a Roman prisoner. Now, that's important. We'll come back to it in a minute because that is uh, that is central to the idea of what he's going to talk about in verses 2.13, but we're not quite through with understanding the significance of this opening phrase. So he says, for this reason, and that starts it, and then there's this break at the end, and then the next time he says it is in verse 14. But the last thing that he says in 2 through 13, which is the paragraph, he says, therefore, now what, what do you think of when you see the word therefore? If you've been listening to me for very long, you ought to say, well, therefore, that means I need to see what it's there for. It's a conclusion. What is he concluding? Now, it, we read through this in our scripture reading earlier, and the focal point starting in chapter 2 is the the administration of grace that God's given to him, and what that is related to is this revelation of what he calls the mystery in verse 3, and that this was not revealed, according to verse 5, in previous 
uh, ages or previous dispensations, but has now been made known to man and now has been revealed by the Spirit, and it's given to him and the other apostles, but primarily to him as an apostle to the Gentiles, and that this is what he is supposed to be uh, preaching and proclaiming. So it talks about the revelation given to him, the uniqueness of his ministry to the Gentiles, and then he goes on in verses 8 down to 13 to continue to talk about the significance of this to Gentiles within the body of Christ, concluding with verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access and confidence through faith in him. And then he says something that seems to be totally unrelated. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Now, remember what I said. you got to look for these markers or you just get lost as you can be. Paul starts off, he says, I'm a prisoner. I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. Then he doesn't talk about that at all. He goes through this long discussion of the fact that he's given this particular ministry to it's related to the revelation of previously unrevealed truth about the Gentiles. And when he finishes what appears to be a digression, it's a digression with purpose. He says, therefore, quit worrying about me being in prison. You guys are all upset because I'm in prison. Guess what? We have an omniscient God who made a plan that takes into account everything. And part of his plan was that for me to be able to carry out the ministry he's given me, I need to do it from jail. And he wrote four epistles while he's from jail. Four of the most significant epistles, many people think, of, of Paul's, Paul's career as, a, as an apostle. And those are important Colossians and Ephesians and uh, Philippians and Philemon, that these are his most mature thought in these particular areas. And so he's telling them, don't worry about these tribulations. Now, we could bring that forward about 1,900 or 2,000 years and say a lot of you and I had a lot of plans, a lot of us had plans for this year that did not come to fruition uh, there were people, pastors, who were planning to go to Ukraine. There were ministries that Jim Myers planned to ha- be involved in and go other places. There were lots of different uh, speaking engagements that people had planned, and we got sidelined by the response to the COVID virus, and nobody went anywhere. What is God going to do? God wasn't surprised. We look at some people who were sick, some things that happened as a result of the lockdown. Oh, well, you know, just think of what we could have done. Yeah, as if God didn't know. You know, that's what Paul's saying to them. Is he says, you think that when something bad has happened to me, and guess what? If God can't keep Paul out of jail, oh, no, maybe he can't keep me out of jail. How can I really trust God in the hard times? And you see what Paul is saying is when something that you think is bad happens, you've forgotten Romans 8.28, for all things work together for good. God's in control. And he wants me in prison. I'm not here saying, oh, woe is me because I'm locked away and I can't go carry out the travels and the ministries that I had planned. 
Those were my plans. God had a better idea, whatever that is. And the better idea was I'm going to get in, be in prison. Now, who knows? There may, may be some of us that get to follow Paul in his jail time. I heard, uh, if you're not aware of this, you should be praying for it every day. We may not agree with John MacArthur on some of his aspects of soteriology and his lordship salvation, but he woke up this last summer, not on that topic, but he has taught for years that Christians should not be distracted by politics. Christians should get too involved, get too caught up in the things of this world and not of the things of eternity. And so, you know, he didn't come quite to the point that many dispensationalists have. Darby thought it was a sin to vote. He thought it was a sin to serve for a Christian to serve in public office. Uh, he thought involvement with politics of this world was pure rank carnality. Uh, fortunately, other people had better ideas and more biblical ideas. MacArthur was very close to that. And then when all this COVID thing broke down, and uh, the fact that his church, Grace Community uh, Church in California, along with every other church in California, was ordered by the state to shut down, they said, okay, we'll do it. This looks bad, so we'll go along with it. And they did. And then they had a wake-up somewhere in, and MacArthur especially, somewhere in the period of, uh, of June, recognizing that God called us to meet together as a church that's commanded in Scripture. We are to come together and sing together. We are to worship God together, and the state has no business for any reason telling us not to. Now, that was a huge move on his part. I remember, you may remember, that somewhere in there when this happened in July of this year, uh, MacArthur came out and the governor again said Every, churches can't meet and they specifically targeted Grace Community Church and he said no we're going to meet no matter what there was a headline the next day now that was on a Wednesday or Thursday that that headline came out and Tuesday night I had been teaching through in Samuel I had been teaching about rebellion and we had gone through the Magdeburg Confession and we talked about that the other term for that is it's the doctrine of the lesser magistrates that when God tells us to do one thing and the state tells us to do something else, we are to obey God rather than the state. And one of the first articles I read the next day, the headline was, John MacArthur invokes the law of the lesser magistrate. And I thought, well, everybody in my congregation will understand that, that headline. Nobody else will, but at least my people are taught well enough to where they can understand that, that headline. And ever since then, he has been in, in the crosshairs of the governor of California. And they have followed all the legal procedures. They, they are meeting, but you know, they follow the protocols. They socially distance and all of the other things, but they're not going to stop meeting. And so they've gone through two or three different court hearings, and the last one, which I believe was like a week ago Friday, uh, this, the, the, that court found in favor of the state and told them that they weren't going to meet, and they met last Sunday, and they're meeting this Sunday. And MacArthur's been interviewed on several news shows in the last uh, week or ten days, and one of his comments I thought was great. He said, he said I've had a lot of ministries in my life. But I've never had a prison ministry. Now, Paul was in prison, 
So if why should I be worried about being in prison when Paul embraced being in prison? It's just another opportunity to speak to another group of people about the gospel. It's just another open door. And that's the what Paul is saying here, is he's talking about the fact that that he's in prison, he's in jail in Rome, but that shouldn't upset the Ephesian believers. And they're apparently upset about that. What are we going to do? Paul's in jail. God's going to leave Paul in jail. Oh, it's terrible. Well, God has a plan, and that plan came to fruition, and sometimes God's plan for our lives aren't exactly what ours would be. And so that's really what Paul is saying. He starts, he mentions his imprisonment in verse 1. He comes back to it at the end of this long digression when we get down to verse 13. And so that tells us that the one thing on Paul's mind is what? Encouraging and strengthening the believers who are starting to wring their hands over the fact that something something not good has happened in, to Paul and he's in prison and why can't God get him out of prison? And we do the same kind of thing all the time. But how does Paul address it? Most churches today are going to say, you know, give you here's five reasons why you should make, go along with the state or whatever it may be. They're going to give you five reasons for this or four reasons for that that come out of pop psychology. How does Paul handle it? Let's talk about the dispensation of grace, and let's talk about the mystery doctrine related to the church age, and that God has now brought Jew and Gentile together, united in one body, in one new man, in one new temple. Now, I bet any of us in this room would be lying if we said, oh, yeah, I thought about that as an application of 2.11 to 22 while you were teaching it. Not. But see, that's because we are trained to think, and I'm including myself, to think that's our culture. We think think at such a superficial level. What are the implications here? God's in control, and he's doing something new. And guess what? God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, and he can accomplish his plan for the church. And it's not dependent on me getting things done in the way I think they ought to be done, but in God working all things together for good. So this is what we see going on in this particular passage. And if we miss the frame for the picture, then we won't quite understand the picture quite so clearly. The picture, by analogy, is what he says from 2 to 12, and the frame is what he says in verse 1 to verse, uh, verse 13. And so what becomes the focal point for Paul is what he says next in verse 1. He says, for this reason, that is, in light of the fact that Jew and Gentile are united together in one new body, one new man, and one new temple. In light of that, I, Paul. Now, that's another interesting phrase that that Paul uses just a, a few times in, in uh, Scripture. When he says, I, Paul, this in the other places where he says this, it is always in the context of a circumstance and a situation where where Paul is emphasizing a very personal relationship with his listeners. 
he's he's being very familiar with them. He's not he's not so much Paul the apostle here as Paul a fellow believer, and he it wants them to understand that he fully uh, understands or identifies with their suffering because he's suffering as well. But what is he suffering for? Not for something mundane, but he is suffering for the gospel. He says, I, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. So by saying prisoner of Christ Jesus, he's not saying I'm a prisoner of the Romans. He's he's not saying I'm a prisoner of the Jews. He's saying Christ is in charge here. I am a prisoner. I belong to Christ Jesus, and he's the one who put me here. And the purpose is for you Gentiles. So as we look at this, we, we understand that, that Paul is writing this. He is in prison, and he is a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and it is on behalf of, that word for translates a, a Greek preposition. It means for, in, in your favor, on behalf of you. And it's translated that a, a, a couple of different ways. Uh, in the New Testament, but that's the main idea, is that he's doing something on their behalf for their sake, and it's translated a little differently in uh, different translations, but they all have that idea that he's doing this for their benefit. It is to their advantage that he do this. So they're going to get something out of this, and he understands that, so he's not upset about the fact uh, that he is in prison. And he is doing that for you Gentiles. And the reason for him that he says that is because he is the apostle to the Gentiles. So let's just understand a few things about uh, Paul's mission to the apostles. And one of the first passages that I'll go to is in Acts. Now, this is Acts 22, but it's talking about an event that happened in Acts 9. In Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus is on his way to murder and to imprison a number of Jewish believers. At that point, you don't have too many Gentiles or any Gentiles unless they were proselytes. That's the Ethiopian, uh, the Ethiopian who is, uh, responds to the gospel by Philip on his way back home to Ethiopia is a Gentile, but that's not where the Gentile part of the church begins because he, he's, he's already gone through the whole process of of becoming a Jew all the way through circumcision. That's different from Cornelius. Cornelius is just a proselyte at the gate. He didn't want to have any surgery. So he's he's a believer, but he's not hasn't joined himself to Israel yet. Uh, that's why Cornelius is the first Gentile uh, who is saved and brought into the church. That's in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. So Paul is on the road to Damascus and then suddenly the Lord Jesus Christ appears to him. There's a bright light. Jesus is in front of him. Jesus speaks to him. Only he can clearly see Jesus or clearly hear him, but everybody else sees something and hears something. So it's objective. It's not something that's totally subjective, which is what liberals will tell you. Paul was so, so overwhelmed by guilt. He is just on the verge of a breakdown because he's persecuted so many and he sent all these mothers and daddies to prison and he's killed some of them and he's just overwhelmed with guilt because he knows the Mosaic Law so much and that's just garbage. 
I mean, I had a professor who said that in, in my freshman Western Civ class when I was, when I was in college. So I know that they're, they, they do this. You know, it's all psychological because everybody today has to define everything psychologically. But it's objective. The way it's told, it's objective. The, the people with him don't hear specifically what Jesus says because it's not for their ears. And they don't see that it's Jesus, but they see something. So it's not in Paul's head. It's objective. And it is at that point that Paul becomes saved, and because of the bright light, he's blinded, and he's given instructions to go into Damascus. And there he will uh, uh, meet a man who will... Uh, he will heal him of his blindness and give him further uh, further instructions. And, and that's the framework that we read here in Acts chapter 22. And in Acts chapter 22, 12, which is a little earlier, he says uh, that what he was told, he relates it there in Acts 22, 12, then a certain Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and he stood and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. That's a way of saying, and instantly I could see him. Uh, Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth, for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And then in Acts 22, 21, he he goes on to say... um, uh, that God says to him, depart for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. So Acts 22, 21 is the first place that it becomes clear that God at the time of his conversion uh, points him as an apostle to the Gentiles. Now the next passage in Acts that talks about this is in Acts chapter 26. And in Acts chapter 26, you'll see that this is another one of those times when Paul is giving his testimony towards the end of the book because he is a prisoner there in Caesarea by the sea. And here he is talking to Agrippa, who is the king, and he's basically giving his testimony down in verses 17 and following. And he says here... um, that God is speaking and telling him this. This is another part of the uh, commission that God gives them, gives him, which is not part of what we see in, um, in, in Acts 9. And Jesus is speaking to him according to verse 15. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And at the end of that, Jesus says to him, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. So he's commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to go to the Gentiles to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So God is calling him as an apostle and commissioning him specifically to go to the Gentiles. He says this as well in Galatians chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. This is where he has a little dust up with, um, with, with Peter over the fact that Peter, who's eating uh, with, with Gentiles elsewhere and enjoying a, a good pork roast and... Uh, uh, shrimp and lobster. When he gets to the Galatians, he's or, or at this point he goes goes back to Jerusalem and he doesn't. He separates from the Gentiles, and uh, so Paul is already confronted him and he says, 
in verse 7, but on the contrary, when they saw, that is the apostles, saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter. So there is a, Peter's the, the primary apostle to the, to the Jews. And then Paul says that he too is a, an apostle, but his primary ministry is to Gentiles. Now let me point out something here. There are some dispensationalists who have said that Paul was wrong when he went to the Jew first and also to the Gentile because, because his mission is to the Gentiles. Well, that's just hogwash because Peter was the apostle to the, circum, to the circumcised. He's the apostle to the Jews. And God told Peter to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So if it's okay for Peter the Apostle to the Jews to go take the gospel to the Gentiles, it's perfectly fine for Paul, who is the Apostle to the Gentiles, to witness to Jews. Just because that's not his primary target group doesn't mean he should never speak to them. There's an application there. There are some Christians who won't speak to certain people about Christ for whatever reason. Now, we, we have a mission field that's the whole world. And so in verse 8, Paul goes on to say, For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, this is talking about the Jerusalem Council in Acts, um, I think it's Acts 17, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace, or Acts 15 rather, uh, who perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to, and I lost the rest of that verse, that we should go to the Gentiles. Romans eleven thirteen he says, For I speak to you Gentiles, the Romans, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. So he clearly recognized that. That is why he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you, uh, you Gentiles. And this, is, this focuses us on the fact that he's using this ministry to the Gentiles, but it's not simply that. He's not a prisoner just because he took the gospel to the Gentiles. Let's look at what happens here. He is a, he is a, goes to Jerusalem after his third, uh, third missionary journey. He goes there because he has made a vow and he wants to go and he wants to, to, um, have Passover in Jerusalem and go to the temple. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Because that's his background as a Jew. He's not doing it because he thinks it's cutting ice with God. He's doing it because he understands what Passover is really all about, and so he wants to go and, and celebrate Passover. And what we learn in Acts 21, 20 to 36 is that a riot occurs and he gets arrested. And a key reason they arrest him is because what he's doing with the Gentiles. And they make up a lot of stuff, and they accuse him of false things, but it ultimately has to do with the fact that he is having this ministry to the Gentiles. And for an Orthodox Jew at that time, that is just heresy. They are He's unclean. You don't take the food that is meant for God's people to the Gentiles. That was a completely erroneous idea, but that's what's going on. And if you read through Acts 21, 20 to 36 as well as subsequent chapters in Acts 24 and Acts chapter 25, that a very big part of the reason the riot occurred, the reason he's arrested and everything, has to do with his ministry to the Gentiles. 
And so it's not simply saying, oh, I'm, under per- I'm being persecuted by Rome and I'm imprisoned by Rome. It is the whole reason that he has been arrested and that taken to Rome is because the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Sadducees had a temper tantrum about the fact that he was ministering to Gentiles. And so they were making up lies, lies about that. Now, as we wrap up, there are three other places where the New Testament uses these the, the same phrase, desmos, which means a prisoner related to Paul, and it's somewhat interesting how they work together. The first place he uses it is at this reason, is, is at this passage where he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. What is his primary ministry, his primary mission? as an apostle to the Gentiles to take the gospel to them, to take the good news, to tell them that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, which he emphasized three times in chapter 2, verses 12 down through about 14 or 15. He makes it very clear in in chapter 2, verses uh, 4, 5, and 6, 8 and 9, he makes the gospel very clear to them. That's his primary ministry. That's our primary ministry. Scripture sometimes talks about the call of a believer. The first call that we have in the Christian life is a call to the gospel, to believe in the gospel, to trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's the starting point. But when we respond to that call, there's a second call that's, that's incumbent upon believers, and that is a call to do something with your new life, to grow, to mature, what is commonly referred to as discipleship that we are called to not just be a saved, but to be someone who is growing and maturing and becoming a student of the word, both in learning what it says and doing what it says. So that's the second aspect here, and that's really what Paul talks about in Ephesians 4.11. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, notice he comes back to that phrase again, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. That's really what discipleship is. It's growing and maturing and to walk worthy of our new position, our new identity in Christ. And then the third calling is to, we're called to suffer. Not a popular sermon topic that we are called to suffer. That doesn't mean, I don't know what comes into your mind for suffering, but suffering is a pretty broad topic in Scripture, and because we live in the devil's world, we all suffer. There are difficulties, there are adversities, there are other problems that we face in life, and we are to handle them on the basis of God's Word. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Testing of your faith it comes under the category of suffering. And anybody who's a believer, God is going to test their faith. So whatever comes to your mind when you think about suffering, uh, it needs to be clarified by what, what the Scripture says. And in 2 Timothy 1.8, Paul says to Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. So the, the first call is called to trust Christ as Savior. The second is to respond, to be a disciple, to grow and mature as a believer. And the third is to face the fact that if you're doing two, 
then you're going to run into a problem, and that problem is that you will face hostility from the devil's world. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul gives us one of those promises. We always think, what are the glorious promises of God? People have 10, 20, 30, 40. I've seen people list 300 promises of Christ that people should memorize, and this never made anybody's list. But this is a very strong promise. 2 Timothy 3.12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. doesn't say might. It says will, but you have to understand that persecution doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the gendarmes are going to be knocking on your door and haul you away in chains and put you uh, on a stake and burn you there. It can be just rejection by your family. It can be resentment by your family. It can be children that reject what you believe. It can be all kinds of different things uh, that come up and cause you problems in life because you are taking a stand uh, for the gospel. So this is what Paul's talking about. He's a prisoner, but this isn't something to be upset about because this is God's plan that he's going to use this to give even greater exposure to the gospel to the Gentiles, and that's the mission in this church age. And so next time we're going to come back, having understood the first part of this of, of this long sentence, we're going to start digging into the lengthy aspect, which is understanding the significance of this new revelation that Paul uh, has been given, what it means, this administration or dispensation of grace, and what all of this deals with revelation is all about. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded of your grace, to be reminded also of your omnipotence and your plan and that things may not go the way we want them to, hope they will, or expect, but that you're still in control. And just because we face adversity or suffering, just because we get put someplace where we can't do what we think, just because Paul got put in prison and he couldn't carry out things he thought he should carry out, doesn't mean that you're uh, impotent, that you're unable to solve problems. It just means that, that you have a plan that wasn't part of our agenda. And yet you're totally capable of taking care of us and protecting us and providing for us whatever that plan entails, and for that we're comforted. Father, we thank you that we understand what the mission is in the church age and that we as believers are to take the gospel to anyone and everyone uh, that we get an opportunity to take that to. That, if possible, we are to take it to the Jews as well as to the Christians, but we have to have opportunities to witness to Jews, which is a very difficult thing. And, Father, we need to make sure everyone understands that Christ died for their sins and that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So, Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we've learned today. May we be strengthened and encouraged in our inner man. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.